okay, moment of honesty. I say that and like people start looking away. How many of you have ever missed a deadline? And, and you look back and you realize you had plenty of time. Like how many in here you notice the more time you have, the worse you are about putting it off? Right? Like you look at it, it's like, oh, we got plenty of time. And then you find yourself the day before going, um. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example that's universal to everyone, and that's tax season. Right? Like, like this year, it's what, May 17th? But, but, you know, every normal year, I'm going to say normal year, it's, we know it's April 15th, right? We know that. And we know we get our W-2, and what's, the clock is ticking. You know, we get everything we need, and we know the clock is ticking. And yet, what, what happens so many times? You know, what do you see always, like, on the news? You see people lined up, you know, 11.50, trying to get to the post office to get it, you know. Like, we knew what was necessary. We knew the time frame that was there. And yet, for some reason, we wait. And then we panic in the last minute. Well, do you know God has given us time in this world? And how we use it is really up to us. But time is truly a gift that God has given us. None of us knows when, you know, our last moment's going to be. And the Bible tells us, you know, teach us, Lord, to number our days, to, to know that we don't have an unlimited, indefinite amount of time in this world. But we do have what we have. We have, you know, this day right now before us. And, and you know, unless, you know, God forbid something were to happen, we, we might have tomorrow and we might have next week. And so what we do with that time speaks a lot about what we believe. And what we find here in this section of 2 Corinthians is Paul writes, uh, in writing to the Corinthians, he brings up the fact that he had a trip planned in which he was going to return to Corinth, but he ended up canceling those plans, and he didn't come, and instead he sent him a letter. And they weren't very happy about it, and so this is his response to them not being very happy about his canceled plan, but what he ends up showing them is that the canceled plan was God's plan in which it gave them time to repent. It gave them time to do what God had told them to do, what he had already instructed them to do, basically in two previous letters. Uh, if, you, if you really read closely in First and Second Corinthians, we, we really can kind of put together that there were four letters that Paul sent to the Corinthians, only two of which became Scripture. And so we kind of deal with some letters we don't have that are referenced. In, and this is one of the, those letters where he told him, you know, I'm not going to be coming, I'm not going to make it there. And they weren't happy about it, and they criticized him. But listen to what he says. It's a little longer section of Scripture, but we kind of have to get it all in there uh, so that it all makes sense together. Uh, because he kind of gets some itinerary and, and you know, just kind of the planning of an apostle who travels a lot and, and is dealing with a lot of ministry. So starting in, in 2 Corinthians 1.15, it says, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh 
ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I caught God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so what we have here is, is Paul defending his actions, really, kind of unnecessarily, but you know, they were upset, and you have people coming into Corinth that are saying, you know, we're the real apostles, and you don't need to listen to Paul. So he feels the need to defend himself here. And he says, look, I didn't come to you because I wanted to give you a chance to do the right thing. They hadn't yet taken the action that he had told them to take. And, and you can see some of what it was in, in 1 Corinthians, that there were immoral people within the congregation. There were actions that they were doing. Remember, we talked about they were getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. Uh, they were visiting the temple prostitute. I mean, there was a lot going on. And apparently by this point, not all of that had stopped. And Paul knew that if he made another visit there, what was he going to have to do? He was going to have to confront a lot of people like he'd already done. He was going to have to really, you know, kind of shake things up there. And he didn't want to have to do that. And so he says, I made up my mind to cancel and, and not come and have another painful visit. So he'd already had to do this once. So remember, be encouraged that if you ever feel like you're struggling too much in your Christian faith, just read the Corinthian letters. Because they, they struggled to get there. But Paul lets them know, look, you're going to get there. And he says, I'm confident you're going to make the right choices. You're going to do this. And, and by this point, they very much had, and we'll see that later in the letter, that they had finally taken those. So he said, now when I come to you, I'll be joyful. And you'll be joyful. And, and we can have a much better time this next visit than what would have happened before. But one of the things that Paul does, and I love this, is right in the middle of all of this, you know, kind of plans and defending himself, he reminds them exactly what God has done for us. Why is this important? Because it is the core of everything that motivates the Christian life. How many of you have ever, you know, you've been reading scripture, you heard a sermon or or, or just talking to somebody, and they say something, and you're like, oh, yeah, and they remind you of something you already knew, 
but you'd kind of forgotten it, you know, not, not wholeheartedly forgotten it, but you weren't applying it to the situation. And it just kind of cleared things up. You're just like, oh, you know what? Yes, I know better. How many of you ever told you, you know what? I know that. I know that. Why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this way? I know that. And you're able to kind of get back on track in your thinking. You're able to, to kind of refresh your faith in, in those moments. Well, it's good. We need to be reminded of the truth over and over and over in our lives. Because the truth sets us free. The truth is not just an intellectual thing that we agree with and then that's it. The truth is something that we live, that we walk in, that we interpret our world through. And we can all get off track at times in doing that. And we start, you know, a little more worldly thinking and, and we get off track a little bit. Then we're reminded of the truth and we come back to it. But, you know, it's also good for our hearts to be reminded of the truth. I mean, it's just, it's, it's necessary. You know, it reminds me of the, the story of the, the couple that had been married for 30 years. And the wife goes to the husband and says, you, you never tell me you love me. And he says, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. And if that ever changes, I'll let you know. You know, we, we need to hear that, right? I mean, it's, it, it doesn't work to just hear something once and then think that it's completely settled. And we see that in, in, in Paul, we see that in, in Peter, we see that throughout scriptures where, where he's, you know, Paul even says in, in one place, it's good for me to write you the same thing over and over again. It's good to be reminded of grace. And, and Jude even says, you know, I wanted to you know, write you about the mutual faith that we have and, and to, to, to stir you up, I'm to remind you of what God has done. We, we have to be reminded of the goodness of God over and over and over and so, what is it that he has done? Well, right in the middle of this, in verse 19, it said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. In verse 20, this is such an important verse, where all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, Paul just laid down some incredibly deep and important Christian doctrine for us right there. And we miss it so many times because it's in the middle of these, you know, broader discussions. And Paul's like, hey, this is a good moment to be reminded of this. What has God done for us? Well, one, everything God does in Jesus is about getting to the word yes isn't that amazing if everything god does in jesus is about getting to a yes in our lives then that means god is for you doesn't it god's message to us is not no it is yes yes to what yes to eternal life yes to peace and joy in the holy spirit yes to security in god Yes to righteousness. Yes to eternal life. That is what God wants us to see. He wants us to have it. And Jesus is the vessel for every one of those promises. Now I want you to hear that again. Jesus is the vessel for all of the promises of God. You will not find fulfillment you won't find access to, you won't find the power of God's promises anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. 
That's why Jesus was able to say when he showed up on the scene and he started preaching, he said what? The kingdom of God is at hand. And what he means is it's standing right in front of you. All the fulfillment of everything God has ever promised in the Old Testament was standing right there in bodily form. And if you want access to God's power, to his love, to his presence, to his peace, to his joy, to his spirit, to eternal life, you must go through Jesus. It's that simple. And, and, and Paul tells us that. Okay, this is more than a catchphrase of all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is, is literally what I'm going to call an existential statement about reality. Like he's describing reality to us. You want to know God? You got to go through Jesus. But when you do, God's for you. He's not against you. He is, he is right there ready to bless you. He wants to give you of his power. He wants to give you of his life. He wants peace in your life. And, and so all of, of everything Jesus is and did was to get to that yes in your life, to get to God's presence active in your life. And so think about the Old Testament for a second. All the promises made to Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus. The promises made to Moses, fulfilled in Jesus. The promises made to David and Solomon, fulfilled in Jesus. The promises made through the Old Testament prophets, fulfilled in Jesus. Every promise made through the prophets, made through the Old Testament, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we only access those through and so he, he starts out just letting us know, this is who Jesus is. This is how God acts. This is what it is. And then he gets into a list, and it's amazing. He says what? He says God establishes us, anoints us, puts his seal on us, and gives us his spirit. Now, that's a pretty hefty list, isn't it? I mean, those are not just simple things. When we say God establishes us, that's a, quite a statement that, that he is telling us that we need to fall back on over and over and over. And notice something about this list. God establishes us. God anoints us. God puts his seal on us. And he gives us his spirit. Notice God does all the work. He did it all. It, there's no point in that list where he's like, oh, and by the way, we need to do this to add to it. What did he, he says, look, here's everything God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? Because on Judgment Day, that's all that's going to matter. And, and I mean that. On Judgment Day, those things are all that are going to matter. Now, I want you to think about this. In that moment, when, when everything is stripped away, and when I say everything, everything, we're about to look at a verse in, in Revelation talking about this. When everything is stripped away, and all that matters is God's work in your life and what he has done, you're going to be pretty grateful for those because everything else is going to be gone. In fact, I, I, let's set the stage for this, okay? In Revelation 20, 11 through 15, just, just listen to this. Let your imagination run with this, okay? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't say that to scare, but I kind of hope it does scare. If we're not a little frightened of that, you're not reading it right. Because what he just talked about was so cataclysmic. What does he say? He says, a throne appears. Jesus sitting on that throne. And it says, earth and sky fled from his presence. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear earth and sky flee, that means everything is going to change. Everything that we know as normal, everything we know as as natural, everything we know as as right and life is going to disappear in an instant. Earth and sky will flee. And it says there's no place found for them. So in that moment, when earth and sky flee from our presence, that means anything accomplished on accomplished on earth isn't going to matter anymore. It's gone. Whoever you were on earth doesn't matter anymore. It's gone. What matters? Is your name written in the book of life? And who writes it there? God. By faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's what Paul is saying. When he says he establishes you, he anoints you, he puts his seal on you, and he gives you of his spirit That's what he's telling you is that on that day, he says he gives you that, the the Spirit is a guarantee. A guarantee of what? The guarantee that in that moment on Judgment Day, you get to cash it in and say, I have this. And God says, come home, you're mine. Nothing else is going to matter. And notice how Paul just kind of throws this right in there in the middle of this discussion talking about repentance. Why do you think he's doing that? Because he wants to show them that God has already taken care of this, but that our actions do matter. They have consequences in this world, but it's God who establishes us. So he's, he's reaffirming their faith in Jesus, saying, look, you are forgiven. Your name is in the book of life. You're going to make it. But I do want you to know you need to turn and and be obedient now. And so he's not trying to scare them. In fact, he says he's writing for their joy. He's wanting them to understand their position in Christ. Now, how many of you, that does you some good to hear like, hey, this cataclysmic judgment is coming, but God has given you everything you need to stand in that judgment. That's going to be amazing. Folks, that is going to be amazing. I mean, you know, how many of you ever picked last, you know, for kickball in school? You know, and you don't lie. You're like, come on, I'm not that bad. You know, there was always the kid that was like 6'5 in like fourth grade that was always picked first. You get to be that kid on judgment day. You get to be the one that's like, look what I got. I got the seal. I got the guarantee. And all I had to do was believe in Jesus Christ and follow him. That was it. God did all the work. And people are like, how'd you get over there? And he's like, because I believe. Earth and sky will flee 
And nothing else is going to matter except for our faith in Jesus Christ. And so what we find in this life now, when we realize that, because we do, we've got to be reminded of it over and over and over. What we realize then is that we get grace upon grace. And I don't say that lightly. We get grace upon grace from God. If he's already established us. Now, think about this. If he's already established us and he says, look, your name is written in the book of life. You're going to stand in the judgment. then that means when he wrote your name down, he already allotted enough grace for every stupid thing you're going to do in life from that point forward. He's already allotted grace for every mistake you're going to make, every mistake I'm going to make from that point forward. So if you're saved at at 10 years old and you live to be 100, you get grace upon grace to cover every sin you've committed until then. And that's what Paul's kind of wanting them to see. And, And listen to verse 23. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. This is one of those moments where Paul showed them grace. He says, you know, I could have come. I could have come and I could have reamed you out. I could have made you feel guilty. I could have pointed out every fault and every failure you had. And would he have been justified in doing so? Yeah, absolutely. He could have come and he could have just laid it down on him like you guys are failing right now. He says, what? He says, I decided not to. I decided I would give you time to repent. I would just let it ride for a while and and basically see what happens. They had their instructions. Paul had already, you know, done that one time with them. He had already come to them once and pointed out everything that was going on that shouldn't. And he decided, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to pile on here. And he trusted God to move them forward in repentance. And you know what? It worked. It worked. And this is one of the things that I want us to to really grab from this is look at everything God has done for us and then look at your life and see where God may be just giving you time to grow and to do the right thing. Because sometimes people say things like, I'm just waiting on God to move. I hate that phrase. And I mean, I hate it. Everything in me, like, like, like you have your stuff together and you're waiting on God to figure it out. I promise that's not the case. That's not how that works, ever. And so if you don't see God moving in your life and you don't, don't feel thing, moving forward or whatever, and you know, maybe you're in a dry spiritual season, maybe God has you in a place where he's just simply waiting for you to make up your mind on obedience. And maybe it's for repentance or maybe it's for active obedience. Maybe it's both. But God genuinely gives us time to do the right thing a lot of times in life. How many times in your life could you look back and say, you know, God could have thumped me pretty hard. He could have, he could have, you know, been my heavenly father and disciplined me and just, he could have made it hurt and he chose not to. And I was stubborn and it took a long time, but over time, my heart changed 
and I realized what God was doing. Anybody have that testimony in here? God does that. You know what that is? That's grace. That is God's patience towards us when he says, you know, I don't want. This is scripture, and it's the apostle Paul, but realize God is revealing his heart through this. And he said what? He says, I don't want to make another painful visit to you. God doesn't want to have to make it hurt in our lives. He will if he has to, but sometimes I think he just gives us time. He's like, you know what? I'll wait you out. And you know, God will wait us out, won't he? He waited out the children of Israel, let them wander in the desert for 40 years. All right, y'all don't want to do what I say. We'll just walk in circles. And we'll just keep doing it. And he will do the same thing to us, not because he's punishing us, but because he's literally waiting on us to make up our mind and to give us time to do it. The problem, and I really believe this, is just what the Corinthians saw as failure. We fall into the same thing. They were angry with Paul for not coming, not realizing what they'd just been spared from. Like Paul could have come. There would have been people embarrassed. There would have been people mad. There'd, you know, all of this would have happened. And Paul's like, you know what? I don't want to do that. But they were angry that oh, I didn't. You should have come. You should have done this. And I think we get that way with God sometimes. Like, God, when are you going to move? God's like, you don't really want me to right now. I'm giving you time. I, I want this to be joyful for everybody. And so I'm giving you time to repent. But one of the problems is we interpret it differently. We don't look at it as time to repent. We look at it as God either punishing us or, even worse, we look at it as God's acceptance that everything's okay. And that's a bad place to be. And in fact, Paul, in Romans 2.4, in talking about people needing to repent, he asked the question, or do you presume do you assume, basically, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When God chooses not to drop the hammer on us, God's first instinct is that we will look at that and say, thank you, God, for the time to repent. Because he says he's kindness. Now, we often think of repentance in terms of what discipline right it's got to hurt we god's got to force us into that but i think we force god into that because god loves us enough he's not going to leave us the same he's not going to just let us just live a life of sin you know if we're his he's going to sanctify us and move us forward and so we can look back and see how many times did god maybe tell us move forward move forward And maybe we got stiff-necked and we got stubborn and we kind of dug in. And then finally God says, okay, I got to thump you because you're going to move forward. But we can, if we're honest with ourselves, we can look back on that and say, you know, God really kind of gave me a lot of time. And he was pretty nice about it. And even when he did thump me, he was probably nicer than he had to be. Well, guess what? His kindness is meant to lead to repentance. We don't look at his kindness as acceptance of something that's wrong. We look at his kindness as him staying his hand so that we can repent, so that his love and kindness can lead us to a place of sanctification. And so grace, properly understood, always leads to repentance. Always.
You ever been in one of those situations where grace is abused and it's treated as kind of a, a license to not repent? Oh, God's grace has me covered. Well, that's exactly what Paul was saying. Do you presume on his kindness and riches and his mercy? Or are you just thinking, oh, well, he's God. He'll forgive me. That's what he does. He says that's not what that's supposed to be about. Grace is meant to lead to growth every time. And so we have to look. We do. We get grace after grace after grace in life. And it should, when we understand what God is doing, it should draw us closer to him. But too many times, we look at it just the opposite. And we look at it as acceptance, and we look at it as approval, even. A.W. Tozer had a, a, a quote that I just love. It says, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. In the end, God is going to. That's why we looked at judgment. In the end, God is going to punish sin. Now, if you're a Christian, God punished that sin on Jesus, on the cross. And so it's not about punishment now, and that's why he says it's all about joy. It's about joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. God's not punishing you. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so we know we're walking with him when his love motivates us to change. Now think of that. We know we're walking with God when his kindness and his love and his grace motivate change in our lives. Because love, there's no fear in love, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't be the threat of something bad happening to motivate us to walk with God. That's not what God wants, and that's not how God works. If we are going to be sanctified in life, it has to be through his love, through his grace. And so that's exactly where we enter into this, this kind of heart of fellowship together because we aren't meant to do this alone. And we get this idea in our head that, that you know, repentance and, and spiritual growth is, is, is kind of my responsibility. But that's not what this is about. It's about us doing this walk together and experiencing the love and the grace and the joy and the peace of God together. And so listen again, his question right here, it can seem like an odd turn in the discussion, but it's not when we understand what he's doing. He says, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul was genuinely grieved in his heart by having to rebuke the Corinthians. He was grieved by their sin. He wasn't angry with them. He didn't want to drop the hammer on them and, and make them feel bad and point them out to the world that they failed. He, he didn't want to make an example of them. What did he want? He wanted them walking with God. With him. He wanted to share that journey with them the entire way. And so their failure grieved him. Their success brings him joy. 
And he's saying, this isn't phony, this isn't fake. He's saying this is his heart, that, that he sees himself so connected to the Corinthian believers that, that he doesn't want to engage in this side of things with them because he wants them walking in grace and growing. And so he says, how am I? His, his genuine, his joy is attached to their obedience. He says, if I cause you pain, who's going to make me, make me joyful? He sees them as so connected, and we just don't see that connection. We don't consider that connection as much a part of our faith in, in, in our world today. We get so individualistic with it that we just forget we are a part of the body. And your joy should be my joy. My joy should be your joy. Your grief should be my grief. And we have to learn to walk together. It's not just sharing life. You know, I always talk about let's do life together. But it's not just sharing life, but it is engaging the journey of faith together at the deepest levels. How many of you have best friends that you haven't prayed with about genuine issues in life? We do that. We have friends that, that somehow our spiritual life just doesn't seem to, to intersect. And that's not what God wants. He wants us to, to do this together, that, that it's not just being friends in life, but it's that our spiritual lives are linked together. And when one person grows in the faith, we all grow in the faith because we were engaged in that as one body. And so, think about this. How many in here, we, we, you know, we've got people who have been in church for, for a good while. So how many of you have ever had an accountability partner for prayer or something in church? Right, right, okay. Maybe even a struggle. Maybe it's something of like, you know what, I'm struggling with the sin, so I need somebody to, to keep me accountable. Now let me, let me see if this kind of is how it worked out. You started talking, you started meeting, you started doing your accountability thing, and then it basically devolved into tell me all the ways you failed this week, and I'll tell you all the ways I failed, and we'll, we'll both feel really bad about it, and then we'll go on. See, we're laughing because we know that that's exactly how it went. That it turned into just, let's just rail on each other for a while, and if we feel guilty enough, then we'll stop. And if I feel guilty enough, then I'll pray more. Guess, guess what didn't happen? You didn't move forward, did you? In fact, the accountability thing probably just kind of flittered out over time, didn't it? It just, it just quit. Why? Because that's not what it's about. God's like, that is not what I wanted you to do. Accountability is not just, okay, come and take your medicine because you're imperfect. And I'll rail on you and you rail on me and we'll both feel bad. That is not what God wants. In fact, Paul says what? He says he actively avoided that. He says, I didn't come to you because I didn't want to do that. That's not what fellowship is about. We always take things to the negative side. This is about the positive side. Fellowship is about the sharing of the joy and the power of faith together. And the sharing of the good. And yes, the 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 counterbalancing of the negative in life and so listen to romans 12 15 and 16 rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those who weep live in harmony with one another now notice where that starts that's positive rejoice with those who re let their joy be your joy 
Now, we're not just talking about celebrating, you know, the, the honor roll because your kid made good grades together. Rejoice. When God does something amazing in your life, you should have people who are there to be like, that's amazing, and I feel better because of it. I love seeing God move in people's lives. It energizes me. And we should all feel that way. But we should also feel when a person is genuinely struggling in the faith, it shouldn't be a guilt fest of like, well, you just need to do better. And you tell me to do better, and we'll both do better. Now, do you feel better? It shouldn't be that. It should be what? It says weep with those who weep. Like their struggle should become your struggle of like, you know what? We're going to get through this. And I'm not judging you. I'm in it with you. And I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and get in the mess with you. And I'm going to help you pray through this. And I'm going to help you live through this. And we're going to do this together. That's what fellowship is supposed to be. And that is the heart that Paul reveals in this when he says, I gave you time to repent because I didn't want to make that trip to you. I didn't want to come to you in a negative tone and, and have to rail on you about your sin. I just, I just turn away from it, and I want it to be a joyful visit where we celebrate the grace of God together. Where your joy becomes my joy, and my joy is your joy, and we just see God do wonderful things. And this isn't about head-in-the-sand positivity. This is about real life. You know what? I've moved forward in my faith, and I have repented, or I've grown, and I see it, and we are owning it. It's not about finding what's wrong, but about experiencing the goodness of God together. The heart of fellowship is not about pointing out the bad, but finding freedom through love, joy, and the power of God in your life. And so I want to ask you a couple questions. Who in your life encourages you in this way? And who in life do you encourage in this way? It cannot be one way. You can't just be the encourager and never receive encouragement of your own. And we have people in churches that love to do that. Man, they are all over. They will serve people and they will give and give and give and give until they are completely empty and then they bottom out and they don't know why. And we have the other extreme where people will, will only take and take and take and take, but they don't encourage other people and they don't, they don't give. We have to have both. To be healthy in the body of Christ, you have to be willing to give and to get. That is the heart of fellowship. And that is the time that God gives us in this world, is to do these amazing things together. Will you make the most of the time that you have? And so, today, one of the things we talked earlier about being reminded one of the things we do as the church is communion together, the Lord's Supper. It is by way of reminder that we grow as a fellowship. Jesus met with his disciples that, that Passover night before his crucifixion. And he took the bread. And he said, this bread is my body, which shall be given for you, which shall be broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which shall be given for you. And then he said what? He said, do this in remembrance of me. 
as often as you meet, do this in remembrance of me. And so today we gather to worship the Lord Jesus, to to hear his word, and to remember the fact that our salvation came not through our own efforts, not through our own righteousness, of which we had none, but through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. He gave his body, he gave his blood, so that we could be saved. And it is through that that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so today, we eat of the bread. And we drink together of the cup. May we continue to remember the grace of God throughout this week. May we continue to remind one another of the grace of God throughout this week. And may we allow ourselves to be reminded of the grace of God by others throughout this week. Let's pray.